The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. My guest this week is Mark Morano. Mark is executive director of ClimateDepot.com, the go-to website for millions of climate realists across the world. My usual co-host, Dr. Jay Lear, is away this week. Mark has a bachelor's degree from George Mason University in political science, which is certainly appropriate to the work he's done on climate change. Mark began his career working for Rush Limbaugh in 1992. After 1996, he worked for CNS News and beginning in June 2006, Mark served as the director of communications for Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma. He was also communications director for the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee under the George W. Bush administration. In 2018, Mark's fabulous book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change was published. And this past March, he published another blockbuster book entitled Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think. I'll include the link to both of these books right under this interview when it goes to podcast. Mark has written and presented the movie Climate Hustle, and last year, the fabulous film Climate Hustle 2, Rise of the Climate Monarchy, the link to which I will also include under the podcast. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Tom. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Looking so when did, you, when did you first come to suspect that the global warming alarm was not really based on sound science? Well, that's a great question because I had always considered myself in the 1980s uh, a Republican, except when it came to environmental issues. I wanted to be a park ranger. I wanted to be a forest ranger living out in the trees. I like camping and fishing and hiking. And so I never liked Reagan's first interior secretary. But anyway, I was deeply into it. And I got caught up in the Amazon rainforest scare by watching the National Geographic documentaries. So the early 90s, I started looking into that. And I realized it was actually not endangered. The environmentalists were not telling the truth on that. I went to do an Amazon rainforest documentary. So by the time I global warming came on my radar, Tom, I was already skeptical from all the misinformation and hysteria that I'd seen around the old rainforest scare. Remember, that used to be the number one issue, 80s, 90s. You had Sting's rainforest concert, which I actually uh, went and covered and interviewed people at. Actually, oddly enough, Donald Trump was one of the... Uh, Yes, at that, the one I interviewed, and I interviewed Donald Trump back, and this would have been 1990, uh, I believe 1998 or nine. So that was the old issue. So by the time climate came around, I was skeptical, and I was skeptical for all the reasons I became skeptical on the other. This was 
hype hysteria. It was all about getting a different agenda that had nothing to do with science, nothing to do with saving trees, and certainly nothing to do with saving the climate in the case of climate change. So Mark, has being a climate realist been dangerous to you personally? Well, uh, no, but I have gotten a lot of threats, but obviously no one's acted on them yet. I'm, you know, I'm still waiting. Uh, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten, I've gotten uh, all sorts of letters to my private home. I've gotten texts to my cell phone, emails, all sorts of things telling me to watch out for my physical safety, telling me they know where I live, telling me the public's going to come after me that I don't, you know, basically deserve to live. So in that regard, yes, there's been a lot of threats about it. But even going to UN conferences and all that, you know. You really get heckled in person, although you know, I do hold, uh, there was the time I brought the cardboard cutout of Donald Trump to the UN Climate Summit in Morocco in 2016, right after Donald Trump won. And I shredded the UN Paris Agreement and I was immediately whisked away by, United, by UN climate cops, me and Craig <laughs> Rucker of CFACT. Uh, we were literally, I was swept away, armed, taken out into the desert, I had to walk about three football fields, and then I had to pick up, they came and confiscated my briefcase. So that's probably as physically threatened as I've been in all my years of doing this. <laughs> it's crazy, eh? Wow, you know, it sort of reminds me of the line from the next generation, Star Trek, where Data's trying to evacuate a complete colony because aliens are coming back to re-inhabit the world and they consider humans as vermin, they're just gonna kill them all. And uh, the, the colonist leaders don't want Data to speak. So they tell him to shut up. And Data says in this line, I, I just can't forget it. It's so appropriate. He said, is your point of view so weak it cannot withstand rational debate? At which point they hit him with some sort of a laser gun and took him out of commission. So, <laughs> Well, by the way, Tom, that's a very good point. Just to the general public, you don't have to know a darn thing about climate science or any aspect of the global wind debate. Just know one thing. Anytime... And this applies to COVID and lockdowns and all the manics. Anytime government, academia, and non-government organizations and the powers that be push some agenda that they allow no dissent, no questioning, and you must obey, just know you're being had. And that's yeah. the bottom line here. And that's, I think that's, if you just take a rational uh, you know, approach to these issues, you don't need to be a science expert to understand it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if our point of view was really crazy, if we said that we're being invaded by aliens from Mars right now, they'd probably let you speak as much as you want because it would be completely discrediting yourself. But in our case, of course, the points we're making are right. And that's why they don't want us to actually speak or be heard. <laughs> and uh, by the way, I, I just was doing some research on this. Do you know that in October of uh, 2019, they had a essentially a viral workshop sponsored by World Economic Forum and Gates and Rockefeller and a couple other organizations. And they had a mock panel of what would happen in a real world virus crisis. And the number one thing that was repeated over and over was we had to stop misinformation. They talked about, this is again, hypothetical exercise and the video is available. They talked about shutting down the internet and not allowing people to communicate in any way, shape or form because the crisis was too great and couldn't handle it. So the first instinct right now of what we're facing by our dear leaders is to shut us down and silence us. And that yeah. to me is the greatest threat we face, not a virus, not climate change, nothing else. This is a form of tyranny that's going to be imposed upon us, or that's already here. 
Yeah, I think they call it deplatforming. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. Like I went to a, a climate change event here in Ottawa a couple of years ago where they were talking about the end of snow in Canada. And they brought in Olympic class skiers and people on stage were just lamenting the end of snow. I had checked actually the snow cover in North America and it's been increasing for decades gradually. And so I went to the mic and I said during the question period, I said, you know, it would be a disaster for you skiers if the snow went away, but I don't really think you have to worry about it because it's been going up gradually for decades. And I held up the graph. Oh, the audience were furious. They, stood up and they shook their fist at me. Go home, you denier, you know. I said, well, look, check the data yourself. So, yeah, the deplatforming is, is pretty rampant. Now, in the United States, you've got something called the Green New Deal. Could you tell our listening audience what it is? and what problems you see it creating. Well, the Green New Deal, interesting you'd ask me about that, Tom. This is like a yeah. bad infomercial because I have a new book out on that topic. It's, <laughs> it's called, I have a book out just out in March of this year, 2021, called Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is even worse than you think. And in essence, the Green New Deal is worse than you think because of the COVID climate connection, the COVID climate connection. They are using the lockdowns now as they template, if you will, to impose the Green New Deal. And that's even what the Biden administration is doing. Biden's being urged to declare a climate emergency, much like we had the viral emergencies declared, which would suspend power, is given more power. But essentially, the Green New Deal is the wish list of the progressive left of 50 years all wrapped up into one bill. Everything from woke identity politics to economic issues to all sorts of cultural issues, all thrown in along with energy climate, environment, guaranteed incomes, a whole hodgepodge of things thrown in. It's their ultimate achievement is what I call it because they finally got their entire wish list into one package. They actually completed that package. The only thing it was missing was the virus because in <laughs> 2009, Richard Lindzen, and I opened the book, my book Green Fraud opens this in the first chapter. He said in 2009, it's hard to imagine finding anything better than carbon dioxide as a way to control human behavior and rule them. And after I saw this quote, I'm like, well, they did it. And I'm going to reach out to Richard Lindzen and get an update to see what he thinks. But essentially, the virus is the greatest thing to control it. So what the Green New Deal is now doing, and the advocates are doing, they are claiming that the Green New Deal is necessary to prevent future COVID-19 type outbreaks, because if climate change is unchecked, we're going to have viruses out of control. In other words, unchecked climate change leads to more viruses. And that's what Bill Gates is doing. And that's why we have proposals now, and I include this in the book, which this will probably be part of the Green New Deal in the, in the United States shortly, but they want to add climate change to death certificates. Now, why would they want to do that as a cause of death? Why would they want to do that? Because they saw how wildly successful CNN, MSNBC had the daily death tolls and BBC on their television screens. They want people scared. They want them afraid. But the Green New Deal is, is just the all-encompassing thing. In my book, I go through every aspect of it, the history of it going back, Club of Rome, U UN climate agenda, 
Paul Ehrlich's uh, overpopulation bomb. And then I go through and show you the global cooling scare, which had the exact same solutions for global cooling as we do for global warming. And remember, before fossil fuels caused global warming, fossil fuels caused global cooling in the 1970s. They thought our aerosols were blocking out the sun. And it's amazing. They blamed extreme weather. They blamed wars. They blamed uh, floods and everything, all on climate change of, of global cooling at the time. Yeah, I think it's great that you went back in history to look at this, because I think it also helps you uncover what their real objective is. And what would you say their real objective is with respect to all this Green New Deal and, and the climate change scare in general? Well, it's a very simple concept. Here it is in a few words. It's not about controlling the climate. It's about controlling humans. It mm -hmm. is that simple and I, and I go back and I show the you know even in the 1970s you have people like John Holdren who was Obama's science czar he wrote articles lamenting that people would could hop in their car drive to the grocery store get a six pack of beer and drive home he was horrified at that the planet can't handle it our resources can't handle it we're going to run out of oil in 10 years i have him in 1980 on johnny carson the tonight show saying what does it matter about car we'll be out of oil within 10 years i mean he made failed prediction after failed prediction but the gist of it is they don't think that, and, and this is Naomi Klein, who I feature in the book, capitalism is incompatible with a living, cl livable climate. So the idea is the ultimate goal here is to control humans, control economy, have every aspect of our life governed. And this is why the COVID climate connection is so important, because the lockdown was their ultimate solution. They are they are first were upset and they were jealous. And then they decided they're going to learn from this. And now they're merging the two. We have John Kerry, Jane Fonda, Washington Post researchers now coming out saying that yes, climate change will cause more viruses. Give us more money. And now we need the Green New Deal more urgently than ever. <laughs> yeah. Now, is, is a climate lockdown coming, do you think? And I spend a whole, uh, actually I have uh, almost two chapters on that in the book, because it's just, it's really the whole climate debate has changed in the last year. I mean, I'm sure you're aware that it's no longer, you know, about, you know, the climate or any aspect of the climate. It's all just switched to fear and, uh, and, and the whole COVID. So yes, climate lockdowns, and they've already started. Here's what's happening. In France, they're banning short haul flights of less than two hours. You think, well, what's that have to do with a climate lockdown? Mm -hmm. They're now telling people you can't fly if you can take a bus or a train. Sayonara, it's too bad. Eric mm -hmm. Holtice, cl climate activist in the United States, is saying that it's a, a declared climate emergency, which multiple United States senators are, are urging Biden to declare. You will not be able to fly unless it's morally justifiable. In other words, you wanna take a vacation with your family? Nope, you've already had hit your quota. You, you wanna to go to a funeral? Maybe, but you gotta justify it to a government bureaucrat who's gonna allow, give you a yay or nay on this funeral that you allegedly wanna to go to. This is part of a climate lockdown. And if you go through the whole uh, litany of things, they're talking about controlling our appliances, our home thermostats, our diets. They're, they're going to raise the cost of meat. They're trying to force fake processed vegetable oil meat upon us. They're trying to push insect eating on us. We're here going through the, uh, currently the, uh, what are they called? The cicada uh, insectopolis here. And that's not the right <laughs> word, but you know, apocalypse yeah, of insects. And the Washington Post is doing all these yummy recipes for people who talk about how we should be eating cicadas, these insects because of the high protein and it's better for the earth and we need to wean ourselves off of meat. And so that aspect and then your travel aspect and then you're talking about abolishing private 
home ownership. Elizabeth Warren, Democratic candidate, new home, no new homes unless they're built carbon neutral. Andrew Yang wants to get rid of private car ownership. He's running for mayor of New York, ran for the Democrats. There's a whole movement in academia. They want to force us into, quote, roving fleets of electric rental electric cars. Oh. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about climate lockdowns. Think of a lockdown, a COVID lockdown, stay at home order, curfew. You had too many people at your backyard barbecue. Your neighbors could snitch on you. They get rewards. You get your water and electricity shut off by the government because you're not a good citizen. We're heading toward this Chinese social credit system where you're monitored by big tech and the government. And if you you know, aren't obeying, if you're not wearing your mask, if you're violating the COVID curfew, if you're flying too much, if you're you know keeping your house too cold in the summer or too warm in the winter, you're going to get a bad score. You're going to get all sorts of bad punishment. You're going to pay more. You may have your utilities cut off. It's the same model. And I lay this out in the book. And I know I sound like a nut, but you know, maybe I am a nut, but that's beside the point. But I'm a factual right. nut with, uh, with a lot right. of footnotes in it. So with, with everything I'm saying is sort of, and I believe when I write a book, I don't think people care what my opinion is. My book is probably, you know, if you get any book on climate, it has more quotes from the other side than any other book, because I believe in detailed documenting of everything they're saying. I'm saying it's not me saying, it's not a fellow conservative or skeptic or liberty. This is their own words. Here's the UN chief saying that we need to put smokers in separate sections in restaurants. Here's Jane Fonda saying COVID is God's gift to the left because of how it's advanced the progressive agenda and climate change. So this is what we are facing right now. And I guess the most depressing part, if you're not depressed enough, Tom, you know, you might want to pop some Prozac, but, but the most depressing part is we have, I think I can say this, piss poor leadership. In the United States, we have, we have um, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. He did a video in May, I believe, late April or early May, talking about how climate's a problem, Republicans care too, but we have solutions. We're going to be doing carbon capture and we're going to be doing the free market solutions and essentially coming up with a Green New Deal light and we'll plant trees and we agree climate's a problem. So Republican leadership actually believes in Washington that they can compete with the Sunshine Movement, AOC, Al Gore, John Kerry, the Biden administration by acknowledging this some, somehow the climate is some kind of a problem, but they have a solution too and that they're going to be having dueling solutions to climate change. This is what Republicans are doing. It's just nonsense. We are just we are just floundering here at the moment. And I'm a little confused. I still get emails from prominent climate. We're winning the debate. This is great. We we're not winning. Jack, bleep. Sorry, I self beat myself. Self-censored myself there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I mean, the Republicans then are they're betraying their base. I mean, these are, yes. are not the people that a genuine um, conservative is going to want to even vote for. That's what we're facing right now. Is even like other Republicans who try to align themselves with Trump, people like Lindsey Graham, uh, and even other some other southern southern senators and congressmen, when you start talking about climate with them, they're all in on this. Oh, climate's a problem. I've never, you know, blah blah. They sound like a John McCain or a Mitt Romney. They're just terrified. In the United States Senate right now, I don't think there's a single Senate committee. Uh, with a Republican, obviously they all have both parties, but the Republicans are in the uh, minority right now. So you couldn't have a climate skeptic scientist testify at the moment because there's no Republican committee that I'm aware of that would have the guts to bring it out. They wouldn't deal with it. Now there's a few House committees left, but it just shows you how that has shifted yeah, uh, over the years. So we've gone backwards in that sense because obviously under Trump and under 
previous presidents, there was more openness to alternative points of view. So, so what would you say is the ideal platform for the Republicans on this issue? If you were designing what they should be saying and doing, what would you have them do? Well, first of all, I like to complain. I don't like solutions. I'm a complainer. And no, I'm sorry, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I had to say that. Um, I think that it's a very simple concept. Republicans need to acknowledge that climate changes regardless of human or natural factors. There's nothing anyone can do about it. There's no evidence in the, in the climate record that anything's happening. But we should always have plans for climate resilience, whether it's natural or man-made. And I think the, the uh, Bob Carter, the, the now deceased geologist from Australia, had come up with a great plan on this. You have a plan that's essentially makes you climate resilient, if you want to use that buzzword, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of the cause. And to that extent, if you're worried about you know, surging storms or rising sea level, but don't come out with the computer models and ours show that it will get much worse by choice. All that's nonsense. <laughs> you want to go forward, you just have a plan that deals with bad weather. You have a plan that deals with always changing climate, regardless of the cause. Republicans could have a brilliant tactic. If we're coming up with sort of a contract for the climate and environment for Republicans, because they, they're, you know, they desperately need help. Although you know, all the help we've tried to give them in the past, it just doesn't work. Now, there's a lot of positive stories there. For instance, I'll be testifying in Pennsylvania later this month, and they have fantastic uh, Republicans there who are fighting the whole idea of Pennsylvania joining the, the regional greenhouse gas initiative. In America, we're now energy, not as independent, or we were energy independent and dominant. But for the first time since Harry Truman was president, we had more energy exports than imports. And a lot of that is because of states like Pennsylvania, which has led the fracking revolution. But now the Democrats are in charge of Pennsylvania and they want to gut Pennsylvania's success story and start weaning us off fracking the death of a thousand cuts. It's just an amazing thing to watch. But Republicans need to go after to stay strong on the science and they need to go after the heart of the bills and attack it. There's no room for compromise on this. Yeah. Now, what would happen if Pennsylvania stopped fracking? I mean, what would be the impact on jobs and, you know, revenue, everything else? I mean, it would be devastating. If you look at the differences between like New York and Pennsylvania, New York, of course, is banned fracking. Pennsylvania hasn't. Pennsylvania has small town booming. It's like it's been incredible for the local economy. But my point and my bigger point than that is if you look at what's happened uh, internationally, the United States has led the world in CO2 reductions because of states like Pennsylvania, because of the transfer from coal to natural gas. And that's what Democrats who run these states now look at that and say, well, this is a problem. The earth can't handle it. So we need to sh slowly start shutting this down. And that's what the hearing's about. And that's what I'm going uh, at the end of June uh, here in 2021 to testify. And by the way, the last time I testified in 2019, just to give you an idea how this works, they had people show up with you know, tinfoil hats on, literally, to protest that I was there and David Legates and, and someone from the Heritage Foundation and some other climate skeptics. But we had scientists and I, I was heckled for the first time during a, you know, a, 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 a legislative committee ever by my fellow witness. And it was a University of Pennsylvania professor who was just didn't like what I had to say. And she was screaming out. She was a geologist who was screaming out during my testimony and interrupting me. That's the kind of thing you get when you challenge the narrative. And unless you're getting that, you're doing something wrong. That's what I would argue. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Mark. You know, I, I'm listening to an audible book called Cynical Theories. They actually have the word critical theories, but they have critical uh, crossed out with 
replace with cynical. And, and what they're saying is that many, many people who are now you know, working actually went through an academic system in which postmodernism actually was the predominant mindset. And you know, the interesting thing about postmodernism is that it was originally theoretical, but it's now starting to come into society in all kinds of things like critical race theory and queer theory and all sorts of stuff, where they reject the use of evidence and reason to actually come to conclusions. They base it on feelings and storytelling instead. And you know, <clears throat> it strikes me that must have been what was happening at your event there with her screaming. She was basing it on her feelings because I'm sure everything you said was true. Yeah, and that's what you know. And what you said there about you know not uh, critical race theory, other things. There's a whole chapter in my book on how identity politics has invaded the climate debate. That is an amazing thing to watch because we have NASA lead scientists right now telling people that white supremacy is the root cause of climate change. And that unless we deal with white supremacy, we can't deal with it. We have climate activists now calling for not just defunding the police, but abolishing the police as good climate policy. It's just, we have professors from Rhode Island University now coming out and saying, the data is racist. You can't trust data anymore because was it basically, it was, it was, it was uh, provided by white people and the data is racist. I mean, this is the world in which we live. You can't even have like an intelligent conversation. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought, brought that up because I think if we go to the root of a lot of this, it is this ludicrous postmodern thinking that leads to these kinds of conclusions. And I think we've got to attack it perhaps right at its root. So I'm really glad you do bring that up in the book. And again, I'm going to put the link to the book right under our podcast, and I encourage people to really definitely get a hold of it. Now, just changing gears here a little bit, your favorite Bill Nye, the science guy, he testified to the Homeland Security Committee uh, in Congress yesterday, and he promoted wind and solar power. Now, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, it, it, this is just the same thing. Bill Nye testified to Homeland Security. Now, the idea is, He's basically, the, the larger premise is we are not safe. Our country is not secure because we haven't dealt with climate change. And climate change is a national security threat. Well, first off, before we get to wind and solar, I get, in my previ previous book, I did a, I have a chapter in my book on the politically incorrect guide to climate change. And I actually include some of that in this book, uh, less so. But how during the cold periods, climate change uh, of cold during you know, the little ice age, that's when you had more wars, more conflict, more crop failures, more problems that would caused human conflict. Warm times are human optimum. So the whole premise of Bill Nye testifying was not only wrong, but it was wrong, wrong, and wronger, and peer-reviewed studies <laughs> completely debunk him. Of course, he went on about wind and solar and this whole fantasy that 80% of world's energy was 1915 was fossil fuels, Fast forward to 2020, 80 plus percent is still fossil fuels. But somehow we're going to turn the less than 4% of solar and wind and uh, that uh, energy generated. And we're going to make that, you know, replace the 80% at some point in the near future, 5, 10, 20 years, depending on what tipping point you're looking at. That was Bill Nye's premise. Interestingly, though, and this would be interesting to you, Tom, is Bill Nye also said, uh, well, first of all, he said people were not having kids because of climate change, which is nonsense. I've never, I've never personally met someone like that. And secondly, he said that he was personally afraid of climate change. And he claimed that the climate skeptics he knows, which I assume would be Joe Bastardi and myself, because he's both met with us multiple times and he even went to Joe Bastardi's home. 
he believes that we're the ones that are most afraid of climate change. And it's some sort of cognitive dis dissonance that we claim we're not afraid and that climate change is not a, a, you know, any kind of serious threat. But that's what he told Congress. So that climate skeptics like you and I are actually the most afraid. And this is the way we deal with it by acting not afraid. If you were actually approaching a climate crisis, the last thing you'd want to do is get rid of your most solid and dependable sources of energy. I mean, it kind of reminds me, Mark, uh, of a captain who's in an ocean liner and he sees a storm approaching. So he tells the crew to get into lifeboats. Like what? Like surely we want to have more fossil fuel usage than these flimsy energy sources if we were headed for climate catastrophe. So I don't think their point of view is even consistent within itself, do you? No, it, it, it is absolutely not. I mean, you know, just the fact that they would have Bill Nye come testify, that he would say the silly things he did. And then, of course, the media eats it up. Um, this is just this is the world in which we live. And then you have AOC has, you know, essentially her own committee. Uh, and there they invite, you know, we've had Greta Thunberg come testify to Congress. We've had the Sunshine Movement. We had the, the most interesting was in the fall of 2019 when all the kids came, high school kids and younger, 10, 11 year olds. And they basically said, mom and dad ruined the planet and it's up to us to clean up the planet. Thanks, mom and dad. It had intergenerational sort of identity politics, young people trashing older people for ruining the planet for him. And of course, this has led to the lawsuits by kids against the United States government with James Hansen, the former NASA scientist. I call him the ex-con because he was arrested about half a dozen times protesting global warming. This was our dispassionate keeper of NASA temperature data. Uh, but he's involved in these lawsuits where kids are now suing the federal government and around the world, European courts as well, European governments, to, to, they want a livable future. And that, you know, because governments aren't acting on climate and turning to socialism and Marxism and shutting down, you know, any kind of freedom that somehow we're destroying their future. This is just, I don't know. I mean, again, there's no other than we're, I consider you and I and <laughs> we're the ragtag American revolutionaries fighting the organized, overwhelming force of the British. It's amazing we're still standing and fighting this. It's just because we have common sense and logic on our side and the science. But it's just amazing how our movement has never been able to translate into strong leaders other than President Trump himself, not his administration in terms of fighting the science, but it himself. Our Republican presidents have been pathetic on this issue. Going back to George H.W. Bush, who signed the Rio Earth Treaty Summit, got us involved in the whole Agenda 21, uh, which then led to all the UN climate summits. George W. Bush, who funded and, and rubber stamped all the UN reports, who talked, who basically said he believed in the climate, then led us to John McCain as a nominee, who was horrendous on climate, actually co-sponsored climate bills previously, then led us to Mitt Romney, who was, you know, had Obama's staffers working with him in Massachusetts and other climate activists. Other than Donald Trump, we've had nothing. Uh, that even resembles leadership. Uh, even Newt Gingrich, who was, oh, you think the Republicans? Newt Gingrich uh, did a debate with John Kerry in 2007 when I was working in the U.S. Senate. And he opened up the debate by conceding that he agreed climate was a problem and agreed with John Kerry. So, I mean, you think of all these stalwarts, we've always had very weak leadership at the top when it comes to climate, except for Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, we'll go for a break now get, and come back right after the break because I'm going to ask Mark about this huge letter that he had a huge number of scientists he had signed a declaration while he was working in the senate so stay tuned we'll be right back after the break 
In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Well, there was a time when Americans could rely on the fourth estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. So, Mark, you actually put together a report that had the names of many leading experts from around the world who were supporting climate realism. Could you tell us a bit more about that when you were working in the Senate? I worked in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, communication director from um, 2006 to 2009. And in that time, this was at the height of the ground zero battle on climate. Al Gore's film had just come out in 2006. The UN report came out a year later, the Nobel Prize. This was when the media, everything started. This was the launch of the climate fear movement. And really was, because if you go back even to 2005, three, it was just, it was not, it was really Al Gore's film that launched the modern real juggernaut of climate. So uh, I actually did a proposal in late 2006 and I said that we have to we have to do something here because the media is claiming all scientists agree that there's only half a dozen skeptical scientists in the world and that there was nothing that we had no science and that this debate was over and that the deniers were out of control. So I proposed it to Senator Inhofe. He agreed in the committee. And I went on a quest and started getting statements, quotes and comments from scientists from around the world. And it ended up we issued a report of 400 dissenting scientists. And I believe, I hope I'm running my time. I think it was late 2006 uh, that we did this in December 2006. And then that grew to, you know, more than 600 then more than 750, eventually more than a thousand. And it differed from what you, people who listened to you might know, the Oregon petition. The Oregon petition was a statement that scientists signed on to. Ours was the exact opposite. It was a sort of decentralized. Ours uh, for the U.S. Senate had each scientist in their own words their own comment and they and then we put their own their bio and their specialty and discipline next to it and each scientist it was fascinating because i remember andrew Revkin in the new york times at the time said well this doesn't make sense because you know morano's got people in there who say it's the sun other people say it's the ocean other people say it's you know there's other costs and my retort back was absolutely we don't speak from all the same hymn book we believe there's hundreds of factors that influence the climate even real climate uh, science uh, realclimate.org 
had said that in their post. Uh, so they've even admitted that, that the idea that CO2 is a control knob is not it. And there's much debate over what it might be. You talk to, yeah. you know, a Bill Gray, he would talk to you about ocean cycles. You talk to a Willie Soon, he'll talk to you about the sun being the dominant factor. Uh, and so there's always that kind of disagreement. So we had former United Nations scientists who turned against the UN. I did sub reports of it, of just UN scientists. We had Nobel Prize winning scientists. We had scientists who converted, who used to believe and then you know, reconsidered the evidence. And then a lot of these were profiled in my Climate Hustle film in 2016, including people like Dennis Rancourt and uh, climatologist Judith Curry, who we did uh, you know, profiled in the movie. You might have seen, uh, Mark, that on the um, late night talk show called Gutfield, Greg Gutfield actually talked about they did a little bit of a poll among college students and they asked them how important was climate change. And of course, they all said, oh, it's the most important issue in the world. And then they asked them, would you give up flying? Would you stop driving your car? <laughs> eat some cold meals <laughs> several times a week? And of course, none of them would. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of a poll that uh, the competitive enterprise did just recently. And yeah. they said this. And I want to hear if this is common in your opinion. The, the CEI report says, while a strong majority of respondents, 67 percent, are either somewhat concerned or very concerned about climate change. OK, so two thirds of them are really concerned or somewhat concerned. But they were asked then how much they would spend. Thirty five percent said they would not spend a dollar. Fifteen percent said they would spend up to ten dollars of their own money on climate change. And I think this is per month because the headline says more than a third of registered voters are unwilling to spend $1 per month on climate change. So climate policies. So, you know, you have to ask, sure, they're super concerned, but they wouldn't spend a buck a month. Now, is that very common, do you find, amongst the public in general? Yes, and has been so for years. I just heard Myron Ebell of Competitive Enterprise reference this. He said, I think it was 37% of the people would pay zero money to address climate change. And then a certain percent would pay less than $10 a month at the most to pay to do it. Yeah. Uh, and the rest, you know, so this is, this has been going on. Gallup has been polling people about climate since 1989. And it's essentially never, it's always registered as a concern in like the high thirties. And that can go up and down depending on Al Gore movies and you know, UN reports uh, or a hurricane or something where they get people excited or Green New Deal. But the question isn't, are you aware or does uh, you believe in, mostly the media will ask, do you believe in climate change? But you look at the key when you look at climate polling are two things, not only what people pay, but how much are they actually worried about it? And of course, whether you pay for it is a huge question with that. But I show in, in, uh, in my first book, and if you go to climatedepot.com, the website, uh, there's a Pew, Harris polling, there's Gallup. They show that when you look at, at, at all issues, climate usually comes 10 out of 10, 20 out of 20, or 19 out of 20 on lists of concern among the public. Not do you believe in climate change, which is a meaningless phrase, as you know. It just means the climate changes, yeah. Man-made climate change is even a, you know, a meaningless phrase at this point because man can contribute to climate change. The question is, are you afraid? Are you concerned about it? And that hasn't really changed over the years. In fact, the Harris CEO poll, polling president last year said climate has dropped off the map uh, and was very concerned about it, which, by the way, shows you how biased these polled the CEOs of the polling company were worried that one of the issues they poll about wasn't polling well. 
this is a key thing, you know, when you look at the polling data to realize that. Now, there's other polls out there that are just nonsense. One named John Krosnick from Stanford. I've done, wrote about him in my first book, Politically Incorrect Guide. I mean, they just, they'll skew the results. They get internet surveys over years and they just try to, you know, they, you know, how you can juice statistics. He'll try to come out with all this stuff like the public's demanding action and all that. It's just all nonsense. You can trust the big companies, but here's the most interesting thing. Gallup poll every year has a subset of questions. And what's fascinating is that almost, yeah, I, I haven't seen the last year. I think they probably would have just come out in like the last six weeks, but they always ask among environmental issues, what are your concerns? And Gallup, at least in a few years past, has said climate among environmental issues, clean air, clean water, species, deforestation, came in dead last. And in many of these polls, they lump climate and environment together. So we have on record Gallup saying that climate is dead last among environmental issues, let alone dead last <laughs> among all issues. So when they lump them together, which they do, climate and environment, the people saying it's even a concern that ranks them at 18 times, they probably wouldn't even show up on the uh, on the survey if they took out the other environmental issues, which the, which the public has said is more of a threat. They're more concerned about those than climate change. So that's what's fascinating. And people just don't understand it. They think that everyone's as concerned as Greta Thunberg or college kids or the nightly news. And they're not. Just a few days ago, the Pew Research Center released a new poll that found that almost two thirds of the American public opposed phasing out fossil fuels as a way to address climate change. So they don't want to do the basic things that the government tells us they have to do. No, and, that, and that's what's fascinating about this. These, again, when push comes to shove, they don't want to do anything about it. And that's what's, you know, it's all about, you know, if you remember Al Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was governor of California, he's like the model of what people are willing to do. He had all that fanfare. I think it was 2006 or seven. They passed the climate bill in California. He was hailed as a visionary. None of it mattered. He was long out of office years before any of it was implemented. That's how people want to do climate. They want it to be all symbolism, no impact, sound good, feel good. And Schwarzenegger got the benefit of that because he was, again, long out. Now California facing the highest energy costs in the nation. They're facing the prospect of rolling blackouts again, all kinds of nightmares from that legacy that began under Arnold Schwarzenegger. But he's seen as the climate champion, the good Republican, if you will, the model for how all Republicans should be on climate. One of the things that environmental and in particular climate activists are promoting is a massive federal land grab. Now, why is that? Like, why do they want the feds to take over so much land? It's uh, it's incredible. I remember when in, uh, places like Utah, Wyoming, Nevada, it's they, it's a it's like a virtue thing where they think the more land the federal government owns, the safer the planet is. Well, first of all, you have the tragedy of the commons and there've actually been studies on this. I think it was Mount St. Helens after the volcano went off in Washington state, the privately owned land, you know, regenerated and returned to normal many years ahead of the government owned land because the government owned land had no motive incentive to reseed, re, you know, fix the land, get it up and running to make money to, for forestry and other, other uh, for-profit uses. So I don't know. This is just one of those things they just want to, they want to grab everything. I think ultimately it comes down to the idea is if the federal government owns it, they're in control of who can use the land and what they can do on it. It's just, this is so much about power. It's an ideology, a progressive ideology. It is about money. I know people say, well, is Gore motivated by money? Yeah, Gore is motivated 
and even the, they're motivated by the power and the ideology of it. And money obviously is a factor. It doesn't hurt when you, you know, when you start out at a couple million dollar net worth, and then when you leave the vice presidency, and then you're worth a hundred million a few years later, and then you, <laughs> yeah. then you uh, sell Al Jazeera, and you and you're worth a half a billion, and then you have the IPO on the fake meat company like Al Gore did. He's on a quest to be the world's first fake meet billionaire that doesn't hurt and money is power but i'm just saying i think it's really an ideology and that's what drives the college kids that's what, what drives academia is this sort of this it's just the idea that man can't be left to themselves because mankind can't be left to themselves because we will destroy the earth we have to be controlled monitored measured just like i mentioned john holden in the 1970s angry that people would get in their car and buy a six pack of beer and drive home that's verboten in this worldview. Think of it in the COVID lockdowns. The reason you weren't allowed to question stay-at-home order, curfews, bans on weddings, funerals, you know, masks, and how many masks, double masks, because the people who made these recommendations went to school, they have master's degrees, they have PhDs. Who are you? You're just a parent. You might be a lawyer, you might be a, you know, a factory worker, you might be a cab driver, but you didn't study epidemiology. We're relying on public health experts. How can you question their wisdom? You know nothing about it. Sit down and shut up and follow our orders. And that's the same way they want to treat the climate. You're not allowed to dissent from it. You're not allowed. This is the world we're going in. And that's what I go in the book. I talk about the Great Reset, ruled by experts, a technocracy, where the idea is you're, you will no longer be able to make decisions because your previous decisions have destroyed the earth. Therefore, the credentialed expert class must make them. And that goes back to your question of why they want to buy land. The more sure. power, land, and stuff they can control, the less freedom and ability you have or companies have to do whatever you wish. And that's the way they want it. And remember, the lockdowns, people say, oh, well, why do they support lockdowns? Lockdowns kill all these people and suicide, depression and drug addiction and deferred cancer and heart treatments and infant mortality rising because babies can't, babies in, in breathing distress, parents were too afraid to take the hospital because of all the hysteria. That's not necessarily an unintended consequence of lockdowns. If you think about it from the correct way of the progressive, anything that comes in and collapses our economy, our old normal, if you will, it's fantastic because that's how you build back better. That's how you reset capitalism and you do it the right way. So they, what they want to do is collapse the old order. And that's why you have Democrat governors still to this day. I think Michigan's, they don't even lift. And of course, you're in Canada, so it's even worse. But states like Michigan, New York, they're still going, I think, to July 1 or 2, you know, with all with the most strict, insane lockdowns. We're still wearing masks on airplanes in the United States. So this is just what we're facing. It's, it's not unintended consequence. These are intended. This is the greatest thing, the greatest advancement of state power happened in the last year. Republican leadership was pathetic. And I'm going to include Donald Trump in that. Shock, shock, shock. In my book, <laughs> I actually go on about Trump, Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow really disappointed me. At one point in April of last year, they asked him, when he was on CNBC, when's the economy going to open? Larry Kudlow was Trump's chief economic uh, advisor. They asked uh -huh. him when the economy is going to open. And he said, well, that's up to the doctors. The Trump administration, he actually is that quote, the, the Trump administration ceded power of the presidency over to the CDC World Health Narrative, Neil Ferguson, Imperial College. It was the lowest point of a presidency in 40 years. Donald Trump presided over it. Now, he tried to recover. And by the fall, he was great. He was doing the right things. But he had 
the damage had been done. He tanked by the greatest economy in 50 plus years, lowest black and Hispanic unemployment, tanked it, which set up that by giving into the narrative of the who, Fauci, the lockdowns, which then led to the mass rebellion, burning of cities because of all the people bottled up with, you know, the obviously the George Floyd Black Lives Matter was made a lot worse by not even having sporting events on and people being forced down by government. So you had that whole mess. Then you had the, the excuse for mail-in balloting, which was ripe with fraud. So, you know, in a way I say Trump set up his own defeat and it was just very disappointing. I'm very critical of the Trump administration in the early part of that COVID. Cause at the time I wasn't one of those fooled. I had watched the CDC, how they destroyed the vaping industry based on hysteria, fear, how they had, uh, I had known the works of Michael Fomento, who'd followed Fauci for decades, whether it was the myth of heterosexual AIDS and all the other previous pandemics, which they hyped and turned into nothing. So this was something the Trump administration should have known better. Yeah, this is where we face when you have ruled by experts, everyone's afraid to question them because your credentials don't match theirs. And this is what you end up with. You end up with rule by an unelected bureaucracy. People who previously we didn't know their names, the public health directors, were now determining when your curfew was at home and how many masks you had to wear. And if you were allowed in California, they banned walking outside, unnecessary walking by executive order of the Los Angeles Mayor Garcetti. I'm not making it up. Right now, Tom, in L.A. County, California, you can not go see a drive-in outside double feature film. Why? Because according to California unelected health experts, that's a too high of a COVID risk. You can go see one movie in your car sitting alone, but you can't stay for the second feature because that's going to raise the COVID risk. This yeah. is the insanity of what the world we're living in today. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and you know, here in Ontario, we're led by a conservative government. Ah. And yet he's doing the same sort of thing. I'd rather have a liberal doing it than a conservative. I could at least understand a liberal. The conservatives would disgust me so greatly that I'd much I'd actually vote for the liberal against them. I'd rather be ruled by a known tyrant than some turncoat. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, I think a lot of conservatives are either going to stay home or vote for someone to defeat. Oh, I would vote for the most nasty candidate at this point. I you know, I have my own philosophy of reverse collapse. You know, let the at some point I don't know, it's very difficult. Although once freedom's lost, it's hard to recover, but you know, I don't no. want to go there. Yeah. The, <laughs> go ahead. Now, you did mention the great reset. And that's something we hear quite often as if it's fairly benign. But, you know, I think part of the Great Reset and certainly part of postmodernism is the breaking down of current systems. First of all, could you define what the Great Reset is and does as part of its agenda, does it involve breaking down our current systems? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're piggybacking on the COVID lock, endless lockdowns that have bankrupted economies, been the largest transfer of wealth from poor and middle class to the wealthy. And the Great Reset comes from the World Economic Forum founder, Klaus Schwab, who in June of this of last year, 2020, said COVID presents an incredible opportunity, the chance to do a great reset of capitalism. Prince mm -hmm. Charles is on board. John Kerry is on board. Al Gore is on board. All the climate activists are on board. The United Nations is on board. They all use that phrase. Your own premier, Justin Trudeau, is on board. And the idea here is they're going to merge the solutions to COVID with the climate change agenda. This is where you get the, the COVID lockdowns morphing into climate lockdowns. And the idea is every aspect of your life will be regulated. The vision of the Great Reset, according to the World Economic Forum's own website, is you will own nothing 
and you'll be happy. You'll have everything delivered by drone. You'll be eating insects. America will no longer be the world's you know, superpower. Uh, we're gonna be, you know, everyone's gonna be crowded living into cities and carbon friendly utopia. I mean, it's a, one of the gravest threats we face and you may argue it's not gonna happen tomorrow, but I would argue it started happening with unbelievable rapidity the moment we agreed to lock down. That's how this whole thing has gone. And so the World Economic Forum, Joe Biden's version of that is build back better. And the idea is you collapse the old way and that's what they've done. And then you're gonna rebuild it in this technocracy way where it's gonna be ruled by experts. You're gonna have a sort of Chinese social credit system that again, they're gonna monitor your energy use. We've already seen proposals like this in the UK, you know, your carbon budget. If you travel too much, if you have your, your home electric bill too much, you're gonna owe credits, you're gonna have, you may not be able to go to a sporting event. They got the, the immunity passports are part of it. Europe is going full into this. You know, they say it's not gonna be, if you, if you refuse the vaccine, uh, you won't be affected, but you'll still have to abide by local quarantine. So say you wanna go from Germany to France, Oh, you don't need a, a, a vaccine to do it, but according to the immunity passport regulations, you may have to wait two weeks as a quarantine, you know, before you can do anything every time you enter a country. But hey, you're, you're, we're not gonna we're not gonna punish you for not getting the vaccine. This is all part of it. In China, they have apps now that monitor who's in debt uh, or in debt to the government, and then you can be alerted on your phone when you're near someone. Kind of like I guess uh, you know a child predator or something would have. <laughs> I mean, this is. It's, it's an incredible vision if you start looking at it. And, it's, yeah. and there's really no opposition to it. That's the thing, because no one's aware of it. You know, I sound like a nutter even talking to you about it. Maybe I am a nutter. I, I welcome it, though. That's the difference. I embrace being a nut. Yeah, well, you're right, though. I mean, that's the point. It all sounds like right out of 1984, you know, and I encourage people to reread that because, whoa, what happened there is happening right now. In our last few minutes, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about something that Glenn Beck said. He said that the environmental, social, and corporate governance agenda, and this is the exact quote he said, is the end of capitalism. The ESG, the environmental, social, and corporate governments. Well, what, first of all, what is the ESG agenda and why is Glenn Beck so concerned about it? Well, it's what I just described to you in the social credit system, except for finance and banking. And so what ESG is, this is what the United Nations Agenda 21, 2030, sustainable development. And the idea here is and the Biden administration has embraced this. It's infecting our financial Department of Treasury, Janet Yellen. What they're going to do is they're not, you're gonna, your, your ability as a, say you have an energy project, be it fracking, oil, gas, mining, and you want to get financing for it. Well, anyone who wants to give to you now, that's going to get a low social credit score, to paraphrase. And so because of that, you're going to have banks, essentially these woke corporations, banks going along with it, and they're going to be giving you higher interest rates, less money, in many cases, no funding at all, because what you're doing is against the woke subculture. So in other words, the activists will not only control, as you mentioned earlier, buying up land, as we mentioned earlier, you know, with a public health threat, they control every aspect of your life down to curfews, stay at home orders. Uh, in Spain, we had kids who couldn't leave. But it, when it comes to finances now, every aspect of banking now, from loans to uh, bank accounts, all of this is going to be monitored on whether you're a good citizen, essentially. And it's part of this thing. The Walmart CEO is all in on this, on the Great Reset. The idea is this corporate responsibility. Like, why, if you're a Bank of America, 
why would you fund the Pennsylvania fracking project? That's not good for the earth. That's going to cause a climate catastrophe. We're going to give half price interest rates to solar and wind projects in Nevada or Texas instead. And this is the way they want to do it. They're going to redirect the money. And again, the public's not aware of this. It's brilliant strategy because the public's clueless. Even when I explain this, it's hard to explain. It's boring. It's wonkish. No one wants to hear it. I see nothing but success ahead of, for them for these kind of ventures. This ESG thing. You know, I, I wanted to read a quote from a recent article. You know, in our last uh, minute and a half, it would be great if you'd comment a little on this just to end off. The challenge for climate realists going forward will be not just showing the hard data, but addressing the warped culture that promotes climate alarmism through a woke lens. And I think this really comes back to our original discussion about how this postmodern wokeness is really something we've got to oppose. All storytelling and emotion. And, you know, is that where we should be actually getting to the root of all this? Should we really be focusing on, on where it's coming from? I think the biggest thing is by assaulting free speech. In other words, if you say something and you could face cancel culture immediately, that's a huge threatening intimidation. And all the corporations go along with it. That is frightening. So what's happened here in, in my chapter in the book, Identity Politics Invades the Climate Debate, the idea is they not only want to control the land, your private property, uh, your, your own the autonomy of your body being you know, forced stuff, mask mandates and lockdowns, but they also want to control what's acceptable in a society down to every culture, whatever word you might use. If you use a wrong word, some kind of you know, bad word, your whole career is over. That is a Marxist doctrinaire enforcement of a life that very few people want to live, even the liberals when they, when they come into crosshairs with it. And I think that is a huge thing. And of course, that's what the college campuses are cranking out, the whole critical race theory. But again, people say, well, why do they like critical race theory? All it does is foment racial differences and causes more racial conflict. Exactly. That's part of the plan. They're, again, it's like the lockdowns. Why would they support lockdowns? It collapses the economy and, and transfer. Exactly. The unintended consequences start looking at the world as they may be the intended consequences. But yes, the, the woke culture, if you will. Here's, I'll leave you with this thought, Tom. Why do liberals and progressives no longer rail against big business and private enterprise? Very simple reason. They now control big business. They now control the corporate boards of everything from Exxon to IBM to Walmart to you know, Facebook to Twitter to, to Amazon. They're in control. And when they're in control, they don't want them to go away. So that's why they want more power, more control over our lives. And this is just, you know, we're facing... I just can't tell you how this is the greatest. The last year has revealed everything from the uh -huh. lockdowns of the Great Reset, the Green New Deal. This is something that uh, uh, Americans, citizens around the world have to wake up. And it's not an easy sell for people who want, you know, who are fighting for freedom. It's just not because it's there's so many tentacles. They've been working behind the scenes for decades on this, and they are now in the driver's seat. I really encourage people to look up the book Green Fraud. I'm in the process of reading it right now, Mark Morano's latest book, and it is truly wonderful. And you get an idea as to what Mark's writing style must be like by this interview, because this was like a fantastically enthusiastic and interesting interview. So I really thank you for, for all this, Mark. And so this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.